This is Reset. I'm Susie Ann in for Sasha Ann Simons. Buildings are more than just buildings. They tell stories. They are physical reminders of our history and our ambition. They also represent the priorities of a city, from the developers to the officials who grant permits. And here's the thing. The design of all these structures around us, big and small, impact our day-to-day lives for better or worse. And they can add to or lessen inequities. Or so one architecture critic at the Chicago Tribune has been writing for decades. A new collection of Blair Cayman's columns is compiled in a book titled Who is the City For? It spans the most recent decade and is out now from University of Chicago Press. And Blair joins us now. Welcome back to the show. It's great to be here, Susie. So, Blair, the title of this book is very provocative. Who is this city for? What made you want to ask and explore this question? Well, um, I wanted to explore this question because it's a central issue right now in, in, uh, for Chicago and many other cities. It's something that's timely. Uh, not that I planned it this way, but it's timely because of the mayoral campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're electing a new mayor in late February or, or uh, re-electing Lori Lightfoot. <laughs> and um, who is the city for is a uh, also timely because uh, there is a very contentious debate going on right now about the extension of the CTA's red line. Right. Uh, and that would extend the red line uh, 5.6 miles from its current terminus at 95th Street. Um, it is an essential, in my view, is it is an essential uh, project for the city to uh, eliminate transit deserts on the far south side. So um, who is the city for um, applies to both buildings, public spaces, infrastructure, and all these things come together to shape how we live. Yeah, and a key theme to that is equity. Um, What does equity mean to you in an architectural sense? Well, typically today, equity means fair treatment for neighborhoods that have traditionally gotten the short end of the stick. That's really the impetus behind Mayor Lightfoot's uh, $2.2 $2.2 billion Invest Southwest program. In the book, uh, I seek to expand the meaning of equity, drawing on its financial meaning as in equities or shares of stock. So I see um, equity uh, having to do with the, the spaces that we share, the civic spaces, whether there's, those are parks, plazas, sidewalks, streets, um, these are the spaces that are that form the connective tissue of the city that draw us that have the potential to draw us together, and um, things like the red line extension aren't just benefiting um, disadvantaged communities. Yeah. If that extension were to occur, for example, it would lead to new development on the far south uh, side, increasing the city's tax base. It would mean that there would be less. Um, Fewer people driving to work, which helps air pollution uh, and the quality of the air we all breathe. Uh, so th- I see the I see the city as a kind of collective trust, something we're all in together. Um, uh, there, so there's a certain you could or to put it another way, which is less empathetic and more self-interested. Uh, I mean, you could say that. In these equity programs, often there's an element of what Royko said should be – Mike Royko said should be the true uh, motto of Chicago, not city in a garden, but where's mine? Right. Uh, and so, in other words, th- there's a self-interest for even um, those who are not benefiting from directly from these equity programs because yeah. it makes the city as a whole better. 
And we'll dig into that in a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, there are dozens of beautiful photos in this book. Uh, why was it important to you to include these photographs and to have Lee Bay, a well-known Chicago writer, be the photographer? Well, uh, this is a team of rivals. Lee Bay is my former competitor at the Chicago <laughs> Sun-Times. We uh, tried to beat each other on many stories in the 1990s. Uh, I, I asked Lee to participate in the project because he's a incredibly talented photographer, and he's an architecture critic, so he's a rare double threat. Uh, I knew that he would produce pictures that weren't only beautiful, but also would have a spin on them, a perspective to them. And that made the job of working with him much easier. And he's really, you know, there are some beautiful images in the book, um, particularly his image of the bean on the cover, Cloudgate, and uh, with the skyline in the backdrop. Well, to that, you know, the front of the book is a picture of of the bean, and the back is a photo of the Emmett Hill building. Why did you choose those two photos to be the first impression a reader has? Uh, well, interestingly enough, uh, Susie, the, when the cover first was proposed, it had the bean, and then the graphic designer who did the the book jacket had put the had made the spine of the book red, so. There was no intention to that other than giving a black and white photo on the cover a little splash of color. When I saw that, I said, oh, my God, a red line. Uh, <laughs> wow. So that spoke to both the red line of yeah. the CTA but also the practice of redlining, which denied mortgages, loans, and other yeah. things to people based on uh, the perception that they were poor neighborhoods and, and bad credit risks. So I then said to the uh, University of Chicago Press, the publisher, let's put Emma Till's house on the back because that way you've got the glitzy city uh, on the cover with the bean and you've got the, uh, the struggling city, uh, Emma Till's house on the south side separated by this red line. Um, I think it's a fascinating juxtaposition because – uh, not only does it speak to the tale of two cities narrative of Chicago, but it also shows two types of monuments. The Bean is a kind of conventional monument in the sense that it's large, architecturally, aesthetically impressive. It glistens. It brings, you know, it reflects the skyline. The Till House is a kind of mo modest monument, simple, um, you know, two flat mm -hmm. um, brick uh, you would never know that it was associated with uh, a turning point in the civil rights era. And yet it tells a stirring uh, story, one that is essential to the city's understanding of itself. So I think part of the point here is that both of these types of monuments are important to who we are and expressing who we are as a city. Yes, such meaning, even in the cover. This is Reset. I'm Susie Onan for Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with Blair Kamen about his new book, Who is the City For? It asks us to consider how design can add to or detract from our goals to make a livable, thriving city. So, Blair, you opened the book comparing the Chicago design projects of the previous two presidents, Donald Trump and Barack Obama, uh, the projects, of course, being the Trump Tower and the Obama Presidential Library um, why did you decide to start the book with these two projects, and, and how does it further help us understand the tale of two cities problem? Well, uh, I, I thought it would be fascinating to 
use this comparative method, these juxtapositions. So the first chapter of the book, as you say, compares Trump and largely it's I'm writing about his sign, not the right. not the tower and, and Obama's presidential center. So comparing and contrasting um, isn't is a tried and true method of architectural historians that re- can reveal something about the two subjects. In this case, it reveal it, it's an unusual thing. I mean, you don't you know normally see Trump and Obama together, right? right? They're about as they're as polar opposites politically as and temperamentally as you can imagine, and yet both of them have substantial egos, and they wanted to imprint their image on the cityscape at large scale. Trump with his uh, s- the giant sign on his already giant building, you know, it's nearly half as long as a football field that looms over the city's riverwalk. And Obama, by putting um, his presidential center in Jackson Park uh, with a museum tower that's roughly as tall as a you know, 19, 20 story building. So the, these, um, this raised interesting, both of these projects raised interesting questions who, that have to do with who is the city for? Is the Riverwalk for uh, a display space for Donald Trump to inflict his name on us 20 feet high and half as long as a football field? I don't think so. It shouldn't be, but it is because the Daly administration approved that sign and there was nothing Rahm Emanuel could do to get rid of it. Similarly, in Jackson Park, what good is going to come from Obama's presidential center? You'll get very different opinions. There are people who think that uh, the museum tower is too tall, that it will inflict um, an eyesore on a park designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. You'll also hear from people who think it's going to gentrify Woodlawn nearby. Then you'll also hear from people who say, this is great. This is going to be a fantastic economic development uh, project for the South Side. It'll improve Jackson Park. So this gets these two particular projects introduce the reader to the question of who is the city for when we do something, when we develop something, who benefits? Who is it for? Is it just for the, you know, the big shot, uh, the ex-president or in Trump's case, the president to be? He was just a a reality TV star and developer when he did this. Uh, Or is it or does it take into account the broader uh, constituency of of the city? And and just side note, I mean, it was just kind of uh, fun to reread some of these older columns, uh, especially the one when you were writing about the the Trump Tower and how um, you had some run-ins with Trump, and it it just the um, the attitude then is very similar to what we still see today, and it, and it's just as if nothing has changed. Yeah, I mean, Trump uh, after sucking up to me to use his words for several years. Uh, because he wanted a good review on the on his uh, hotel and condo tower, turned on me after I uh, attacked the uh, sign as an eyesore. Uh, he went on the Today Show. He said I was a third-rate critic. He said he thought I had been fired from my job. Uh, <laughs> this I felt like a canary. I have felt like a canary in the coal mine because Trump's treatment of me foreshadowed the way that he would turn on journalists who were you know tough on him and label them enemies of the people. Uh, and it, it's very strange to watch someone you know, because I got to know him during this whole process, uh, and who is such a narcissist and so self-involved, become the most powerful person in the world. 
And, you know, so when I wasn't surprised when he sat there on January 6th and watched the whole insurrection on Fox TV, didn't do anything for several hours as people were attacking the Capitol, that's Donald Trump. It's all about him. He was probably happy that people were taking his side. Uh, it's tragic. It and, really yeah, is. And it's just experience that from a completely different role as just as someone who is writing about architecture. Yeah. I mean, the stakes in governance are way, way higher than they are in when you develop a building. Right. Uh, so, yeah. Well, uh, you know, speaking about uh, being a writer, I mean, you stepped down from the Tribune last year. Uh, Lee Bay, who took the photos for the book, um, writes a column for the Sun-Times focusing on design once a month. Um, so pretty much leaving no full-time architecture critic at the Trib or the Sun-Times. Um, so part of this book is, as you say, a story within a story uh, of how digitalization has changed the media landscape. Mm-hmm. In your view, what's lost with fewer full-time architecture critics? Well, what's lost is um, a vigorous dialogue about urban design and architectural issues that shape our lives. To Lee's credit, he is writing more than once a month about architecture and urban design. He also writes as an editorial writer, writing unsigned editorials. And you can always tell they're Lee Bay pieces, <laughs> even if they don't have Lee Bay's name on them. Uh, so props to Lee for doing that. At the same time, Chicago really does need, uh, ideally, at least one full-time architecture critic. It's one of its media outlets. The skyline and the city are really of expressions are expressions of who we are, our visions, our values, and how we live every day. And as we've seen, development policies in the city can achieve tremendous positive outcomes like our lakefront, or they can um, trap people in very difficult circumstances, as we see in some of the struggling neighborhoods on the south and west sides. Things like this need to be a part of the civic conversation all the time. Public officials, architects, developers all need to be held accountable for what they're doing. And we need to have projects and proposals questioned before they, um, you know, take concrete form that we're going to live with for better and for worse for decades to come. Well, um, turning again to to equity, you know, buildings and green spaces have the ability to gentrify and and displace people, uh, even when they are filling a void. Um, The 606 is an example. What did we learn from that development? I think what we learned is that equity is desirable but not simple. Uh, The 606 was built to address um, a shortage of open space off the lakefront in neighborhoods on the uh, northwest side. What happened in uh, response to it was a rush of development uh, that replaced affordable two- and three-flats Uh, and single-family homes with luxury housing, condos, and luxury single-family homes. Ironically, many of those, uh, uh, many of the residents who were supposed to benefit from the open space of the 606 wound up getting gentrified out of the housing they lived in. They wound up marching on the 606 to protest this gentrification. Um, So as we go forward, it's very important to think of equity not in two-dimensional, not as a two-dimensional checkers game. The city building is really a three-dimensional chess game. It's very complicated. You have to always anticipate 
when you do one thing, something else is going to happen. Uh, and as as Chicago tries to do other uh, uh, re- uh, transformations of uh, existing uh, rail lines, like mm-hmm. like as it plans to do in Englewood, the lessons of the 606 really have to be kept in mind. Yeah, I mean, I think of the 95th Street Red Line Station. Um, I mean, it, it seems like that's that is a project that really kind of brought something to the community that did not displace. Absolutely. Uh, at least so far, uh, that has been a model equity project. And it's one that really, you know, brings us back to one of the subjects we started, which is with which is extending the red line from that current terminus at 95th. Um, but yeah, that uh, that that current that project, the 95th Street Station, is really a good example of something that um, improved the transit experience on a day-to-day basis for hundreds of, if not thousands, of people who take the red line and the buses that feed into it. Uh, there's even a uh, DJ station yeah. <laughs> at that uh, uh, at that station, um, and it was really meant to. Um, incorporate music into the experience of the everyday um, uh, traveler. Yeah. And that's great because it's it's tailoring um, the CTA experience rather than just putting out a generic station. There's also art by Theaster yeah, Gates in the yeah. station. So it's, it's an excellent project and uh, in many ways a, a, a prime example of how good architecture, good planning can really have a positive impact uh, on the city and make it more equitable. And we only have uh, about a minute left, but I wanted to ask, um, what's the importance of, of preserving the Farnsworth House and Emmett Till's House? You know, we, we spoke about Emmett Till's House um, earlier. Both of these projects show that historic preservation needs to expand beyond preserving history book buildings like ones by Louis Sullivan or Daniel Burnham. The Till House uh, is important because it's uh, it preserves an um, a significant piece of African-American history. The Farnsworth House, a great masterpiece by Mies van der Rohe, located uh, several, well, 30-some uh, miles or 40-some miles or 50-some miles mm-hmm. west, southwest of the city, is important because it's been renamed um, for Edith Farnsworth, the patron of the house, and that shows that gender uh, is is an important issue when it comes to preservation and can be part of the story. So, the, the whole idea here is, again, to expand our vision and to show that the buildings we save as much as the buildings we build now are part of the story that defines who yeah. we are. That's Blair Kamen, author of Who's the City For? and former architecture critic at the Chicago Tribune. Thank you so much, Blair. Thank you, Susie. It was great to talk to you.